This is Hannah Thompson, and you're listening to Blue Room, Bluecast's new child podcast brought to you by Indiana Review. Today, we're previewing What Are You Afraid Of? by Becky Adnot Haynes and interviewing Editor-in-Chief Tessa Yang on why she selected this piece. It's spring, which is a bad time for comedy. The city outside alights hopefully with new growth, white-tipped trees and yellow daffodils. There are brisk, happy joggers and adults tossing forth bocce balls in the park. It has been a long, hard Midwestern winter, and people are practically giddy. It's hard to be ironic about any of it. Essie doesn't trust it, spring. What was supposed to be so fucking great about it anyway? Well, okay, a lot of things. It was nice to not have to wear a jacket, or to have to dislodge your car from the stalactites of ice that hung from the roof of the carport of the apartment your husband didn't want to move into because it had a carport. And the sun staying out a little later than four o'clock? Well, okay, that was good too. And there was the scent of honeysuckle that drifted off the neighbor's oversized pergola. That smelled nice. But still, it had no edge, spring. In balmy weather, people had no need for the jokes of amateur comedians. Give her winter any day, when people, once you dislodge them from their couches, would sit in a dim comedy club for hours, getting increasingly drunk. Or fall with its crumbling vegetation, its brilliant death and decay. And so Essie's heart surges upon discovering that her apartment has been burglarized, a thrum of trembling excitement that stays with her as she tiptoes through the open door. It's an odd reaction, she recognizes, but there it is. Material, she thinks. She's always been jealous of comics whose lives are touched by danger or oddity. Mike Birbiglia, for example, would not be half as funny without his sleepwalking disorder. Perhaps her burglar has logged into his Facebook account on her laptop or fixed a bologna sandwich. Dan, her husband, will be displeased. An exceedingly cautious person, he has taught her things. Never trust that the mechanic hasn't accidentally drained your oil tank instead of filling it. Shred pre-approved credit card offers before discarding them. But after a decade of marriage, Essie has grown careless, her natural laziness bursting forth like a springtime waterfall. She buys discounted moisturizer from an unverified website. She uses the same password, the cat's name, Geronimo, for everything. She begins to identify with movie characters who open doors to reveal men wielding axes and other unlikely weapons. These people aren't stupid, she thinks. It's just that the worst case scenario so rarely happens. And so she patrols the house alone, carrying with her a large butternut squash for protection. Would she really have the nerve to whack someone? She wishes just a little to be tested. Or... There'd been a story a few years back about a girl in Winston-Salem who had stopped a would-be rapist by talking to him about God. Essie hadn't been raised in the church, but perhaps the burglar would like to hear some jokes. She knows a lot of jokes. Hello, she calls. When there is no answer, she picks through the damage. Dan's giant jar of change has been overturned, and she can't find one of the many remote controls necessary for operating the television. In the kitchen is an untidy heap of spatulas splayed on the floor next to her measuring cups. Has she always owned so many spatulas? Suddenly she can think only of a joke she heard once as a child. Old burglars never die. They just steal away. What were you thinking? Asks Dan when he gets home. Why didn't you call the police? It's the second incident in as many weeks. The week before she'd left her purse on the passenger seat of her unliked car and, as if to teach her a lesson, someone had plucked it away. I had protection, she says, and tells him about the squash. Already in her head it is forming a bit. Stand back, I'm armed with vegetables. He didn't steal much anyway, just some DVDs in the change jar. 
You should really be more careful, Dan says. Everything isn't a joke, you know. I will, she says. I promise. Would you like some more soup? After it had become clear the intruder was gone, she baked the squash with nutmeg, pureed it with heavy cream. I'm getting you some pepper spray, Dan says, and after the dishes are done, they go on the internet together and order a pink spray bottle and a keychain that promises to repel intruders from up to 15 feet. When it gets here, let's go to the park and test it, he says. On someone? He ignores her joke, which is happening a lot more lately. Just, he says, you know, to make sure you know how to engage the mechanism properly. And then he actually says, like the Eagle Scout that he once was, one should always be prepared. Fear, according to their therapist, it is what has come between them. Her name is Dr. Mona Mercy, and she's a practitioner in the burgeoning business of data psychiatry in which shrinks come data scientists build models to determine whether you and your partner should A, stay together, or B, break up. Dr. Mona's margin of error is a reliable plus minus 4%, which Dan has explained to Essie is really quite good. I'll gather, I'll gather data through a series of brief surveys and Q&A sessions, Dr. Mona told them at their first meeting. She preferred to be called by her title and first name, a practice Essie found simultaneously childlike and condescending. At the end, your results would be delivered in a series of infographics. Dr. Mona had a big pointed nose and the dark focused eyes of a predatory bird and wears soft matronly cardigans to apologize for this fact. Dan had read about her practice in an article called Love and Divorce in the Age of Big Data in the waiting room at the dentist, poaching the magazine to show it to Essie. Mm -hmm. They'd had to wait six weeks before enough other doomed pairs cleared out to make room for them. They're on the way to their ninth of ten sessions, riding in Dan's old Honda while slurping milky lattes, a little pre-therapy ritual Essie had thought would lift their spirits, but has turned out to be mostly dejecting. Essie still has no idea what their verdict will be. Stay married? Get a divorce? She wonders if there's any middle ground. Stay married, but take a lover in the city? Separate, but meet up for an emotionally messy rendezvous six months later? This week, for Fear and Value Statements Part 2, they've been instructed to each make a list of the ten things that terrify them most. Food poisoning, Essie reads aloud from Dan's. Ooh, that's good. I'm adding that to mine. You have to give me one of yours, then, Dan says, his eyes still on the road. You can have reintroduction of woolly mammoths into the ecosystem, Essie says, and is surprised when he laughs. It's one of those increasingly rare moments when they feel like pals. Early in their marriage, both of them just out of college and giddy with the possibility of the future sprawling before them, it had always felt like they were on each other's side. But then, almost imperceptibly, something had happened. They'd grown apart, of course they had, but it was more than that. It was a deep, chasm-like apartness, the type of apartness where you begin to feel a little bit crazy, like the person you agreed to spend all the weeks of the rest of your life with has begun to see you in a totally different light, thinking you irresponsible and flighty and unserious, and you have begun to find him paranoid and unfunny. Essie isn't sure yet what will become of her and Dan. She actually looks forward to having Dr. Mona make this decision for her. They settle into the chambray wingback chairs that Essie saw in last year's Ikea catalog. She glances at her husband. She's always liked how she and Dan look as a couple. He the contractor, she the stand-up comedian. He is normal-looking, with a thin, wide mouth and light-colored eyes and hair. She's the right amount of pretty for an aspiring comic, which is to say not very. In addition to being slightly overweight, she has her father's wily black, pubic-looking hair and her mother's strong jaw, and she likes to dress in the manner of a slightly insane person with oversized accessories and clashing patterns and heaps of jangly bracelets. Today, she's wearing a baggy, polka-dotted ship dress, fringed leather booties, and bright coral lipstick. Dan, we'll start with you, Dr. Mona says. Dr. Mona is wearing one of her fuzzy sweaters, which buttons at the neck and makes her resemble, if only slightly, a llama. You listed cloud security. 
Essie, what do you make of that? Cirrus or cumulonimbus, as he jokes, then clears her throat. Sorry. I, uh, maybe Dan, maybe he could elaborate a little more. I'm not exactly an expert in, in what, she thinks, in, uh, computers. Dr. Mona nods. I think that would be wise. Cloud security represents a single point of vulnerability, Dan begins. A breach can mean that all of one's data is gathered in one fell swoop, a particularly attractive target for hackers, as you can imagine, since there's just one password guarding a veritable jackpot of personal information. Essie feels herself drifting away like a person losing consciousness. She is smart, but has a poor attention span, a fact that has long annoyed Dan. Thank you for that clarification, Dan, Dr. Mona says. Essie watches her pick a piece of fuzz from her sweater and place it deliberately on the desk. Essie, let's try again. How scary does cloud security seem to you? A breach in cloud security, Dan corrects. A breach in cloud security, on a scale of one to seven. Um, Essie says, I don't know, a four? Dr. Mona uses her stylus to make a note on her iPad. What does that mean, Essie asks. Is that bad? I wouldn't say it's good or bad, Dr. Mona says. Everything's simply evaluative. It's data. At this, Dan squeezes his wife's hand. He likes data. But the truth is that it does seem bad to Essie, who has become increasingly alarmed as she read through Dan's list. Home intruders, identity theft, cyber threats. There were several sub-items under the larger umbrella of cyber threats that Essie had never even heard of. Botnets and precision-targeted malware. Dan has always been cautious, but as the years pass, his paranoia has become more and more pronounced, like the hair, like the hair that grows from one's inner ear. Recently, he installed a third deadlock and brought, bought a shredder as big as a small refrigerator. Just last week, he'd spoken of acquiring a gun. An old joke springs into Essie's head. Question, what do you call an elephant with a machine gun? Answer, sir. She feels her cheeks color and glances once quickly at Dan, as if he might be able to read her mind. But they have moved on to Essie's list, which Dr. Mona is unsatisfied with. Fungus from getting a pedicure, she'd written, and lake monsters. She'd also listed gravitational effects of aging and, at the last minute, had scribbled on the name of an infectious disease that had not so far traveled further north than Honduras. 60 Minutes had done a segment on it. Is that it? Dr. Mona asks. Is that really, really it? Essie shrugs. I'm honestly just not really afraid of that much. Okay, Dr. Mona says. It's a start. Essie notices for the first time the dark circles under her eyes and wonders she spends nights at home with her Excel spreadsheets and her statistical software, cleaning data and building models. The article hadn't mentioned a husband, though it noted her two large rescue dogs. For this to work, she says, I need a richer data set. I want you two to fill out these surveys again. And this time, Essie, I want you to really ask yourself, what are you afraid of? Tessa? Hi, Hannah. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? I'm great. Well, as you said, Hannah, I'm the editor-in-chief of IR. Um, I like to describe my job as the ideal combination of the creative side and the business side of Indiana Review. I get to attend all of the genre deliberation meetings, um, discuss, and vote on all the pieces that our genre editors uh, bring up for a possible publication, and every once in a while I get to dip into the slush pile myself and pull out pieces that uh, really appeal to me for one reason or another, which was the case with Becky's piece. When you were dipping into the slush pile, as you say, to define this piece, what um, in particular made this piece stand out to you amongst the hundreds that you see in slush? Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, I guess I should say that this piece had already been flagged as a maybe by our then fiction editor, Maggie Sue. This would have been in spring of 2017. Something that appealed to me right away when I was slushing was the voice in this piece. It just draws you in. The first line is, it's spring, which is a bad time for comedy. And I read that line and I'm thinking, I don't completely know what that means. Why is spring a bad time for comedy? Um, but by the time I finish the first paragraph, I know I'm in the hands of a narrator who's very observant and wry. It's a narrator that I can trust to pull me through this story, uh, which is actually quite a long story. And to be honest, it's a few hundred words over our maximum word count, which is 8,000 words. And that is a testament to its strength. Because when I'm reading Slush and I see a story that's even just a bit too long, I'm kind of predisposed to say no. So it has to be doing something really great to justify those extra words, and it has to be doing it right away. Let's let's go back to the idea of Slush. What do you what do you look for when you're reading through Slush? Well, this story hits all the major marks of what we're looking for in strong fiction: voice, character expert pacing, writing that is crystal clear and very easy to follow. I should say that for me personally, I love dialogue in stories, um, and this story is in a large part driven by its very energetic dialogue. As for a particular aesthetic or theme, we don't have one on IR. We're just looking for the best in whatever form that takes. But for this particular issue, issue 39-2, we did have a lot of magical realist stories coming in. Um, most of them were finalists for our fiction prize, and we were interested in balancing that out with some compelling realism, and this story fit that mark. So you talked a little about what first caught your eye with this story, but I kind of want to know how you felt about the story after having read it once or twice. And in Indiana Review, what we do is we have multiple sort of vetting processes for stories where it's first selected by editors and then it's voted on by our readers. What I want to know is why you feel connected to the story beyond just your first impressions. Sure. Well, there's this amazing magnetism between the two main characters, Essie and Dan, that just kind of unfolds and deepens as the story proceeds. They're married, but they're thinking maybe they should get a divorce. They're in couples therapy, and they're so different. Dan is serious, cautious. He's likable in his own way, but a little boring. Essie is an aspiring stand-up comedian who doesn't always think things all the way through. They're both very smart, they're attentive, and they have this lingering affection for one another. There's a scene at the end where Essie admits that there are many endearing qualities about Dan, and so their relationship is complicated. Uh, the author, Becky, is is too good to just say these are people who hate each other and that's it. It's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, and I won't give away the, the fate of the relationship, but um, yeah, suffice to say it's very complicated. Something else that continued to draw me in past that initial paragraph, uh, and I already mentioned this, but is the pacing. There's just no lag time. The dialogue is so lively. A few pages in, we find out that Essie's going to open for some regional comedians uh, at Pro-Am Night. So there's this expectation, too, that 
we're going to get there, we're going to see her on stage, and something is going to happen at that event, probably something not very good. And that expectation is part of what keeps you wanting to read. So one thing I want to talk about, this sort of came to me last night. I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw a friend had like retweeted some tweet about how whenever somebody who has been married for a while, and especially if they've just left a job, starts to do stand-up comedy, you can expect a divorce. (laughs) And so I feel like this story is kind of about that. And so what I want to know is, um, because we, uh, creative writers and people who deal with creative writing talk a lot about, I mean, especially when, if you're teaching creative writing, you get a lot of students who say, oh, well, it's, like everybody can relate to it. So it's so good because it's just like general and everybody knows, but that's not the case in creative writing. So I kind of want to know like what you found that was like particular and specific in the story that felt um, fresh. I think, I mean, the actual content of of the jokes, the story is full of jokes. Um, The characters poking fun at other people. She's poking fun at herself And I continue to find those funny. I've read the story five or six times now, and it it still makes me laugh every time. So that's a sign that that story is just doing something really delightful, really original in its wordplay and in its wit. And, you know, again, it just it goes back to the character, their situation, you know, a couple with a kind of fraying relationship, not unique, but the characters themselves and the way they're responding to it is so particular to this story. Part of the reason why I wanted to create this Blue Room podcast is because I wanted to talk about sort of the process of choosing pieces for Indiana Review. What I wanted to ask you about is if somebody wrote realist stories, comedic stories, stories about relationships and that were character heavy and they were wanting to submit to IR, what would you look for in that story? What advice would you give them? For a realist story? Just just anything like this story by Becky Adnan Haynes. Okay, something similar to what are you afraid of? Mm-hmm. I think an element of surprise is so essential in all fiction. Magical realist stories or surrealist stories, they kind of have that embedded into the plot. There's an element of something off, and it's usually off in the first paragraph. But realist stories have to have that, too. They have to have that component of something is a little strange here. And I think they almost have to toe the line between what's believable and what's not believable. It's a a really difficult thing to do. Um, You want to pull it off without feeling that you're being self-conscious about trying to make this a really uh, edgy or uh, surprising kind of story. I think that with humor, less is more in some ways. And it's important for the story to not feel self-satisfied in its humor. It, it just goes back to, again, character. Um, what would these people actually do in this circumstance? I think it also goes back to bouncing out sillier moments with moments that are serious. It's about striking that tonal balance. Um, what are you afraid of does that consistently? There's humor in the serious moments. There are kernels of real wisdom in the sillier moments. There's even a scene where it feels like Essie's in danger and you suddenly realize, oh, is, is this story going to turn? Is this story going to do something else? You you don't want it to, right? You don't want her to be in danger, but the story is kind of playing between modes. And I think comedic stories, um, 
that's an opportunity to do that kind of play. That was Tessa Yang, our editor-in-chief at Indiana Review, and we were talking about What Are You Afraid Of? by Becky Adnot Haynes. Becky Adnot Haynes received her Ph.D. from the University of Cincinnati, where she was associate editor of the Cincinnati Review. Her short story collection, The Year of Perfect Happiness, won the Catherine Ann Porter Prize and was published in 2014 by University of North Texas Press. She lives with her husband and son in Cincinnati, where she works as a copy editor. You can find Indiana Review on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our handle on most of those is INReview, so in review. I'm Hannah Thompson. You can find me at Twitter at HandsLoveHandles. You can also track me down on Twitter at the TessaDactyl. Thanks for listening to The Blue Room. We were reading from Indiana Review 39.2, which you can find in bookstores and online for $12. We'll be back next month.